Welcome back to another episode of the MicroConf Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Walling, and today we are going to hear a recent MicroConf on-air live stream that I did titled, Rob Answers Audience Questions. And I opened the door for any type of questions around startups or other categories, and we got some really good ones. Things like, what are three key tips for pre-launch, pre-revenue companies that you need to make sure you do or do you have any general observations about building a SaaS for non-technical customers where I'm going to be experiencing customer pain? Or someone has a question about their first sales hire and how they should balance between several different components. We run through, it's got to be eight, nine, ten questions. And I love that we are now able to bring this to you asynchronously on this podcast feed. Before we dive into that, I want to let you know two things. Number one, MicroConf Local in London is May 18th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. We would love to have you there. Tickets are inexpensive. It's a one-day event. It's microconf.com slash local London, although there's a dash, local dash London. And if you're interested in speaking at any MicroConf event, we are always looking for speakers. So head to microconf.com and look for our call for speakers. I believe it's in the, uh, the footer and fill out that form. And if you are a fit, we will be in touch. And with that, let's dive into the live stream where I answer a slew of audience questions. And we are live. Welcome back to MicroConf on air just about every other week at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, we live stream for yeah, 20 or 30 minutes and we talk about all things SaaS, startups, sometimes life, sometimes freedom, purpose, and relationships. And I'm really glad that you joined me today because it is this is the most creatively titled on-air we've ever had, Rob Answers Audience Questions. Um, we are going to be talking for the next 15, 20 minutes, maybe 30 until the questions run out. I see we already have several that have come in to the MicroConf on air channel in MicroConf Connect. If you're not in there, head to microconfconnect.com, get signed up. That's the easiest way to answer questions and those get a slight priority over, over the, uh, the other avenues. We have crossed 3000 founders and aspiring founders in MicroConf Connect as of just a few days ago. So it's exciting news. There's a lot of great conversations, um, and there's channels ranging from whiskey to rants to SaaS pricing to hiring to MicroConf on air, where folks are asking questions today. If you are watching on YouTube, you can also uh, ask them in the chat. And producer Ron is manning the switchboard today, so he'll be pulling those into uh, this lovely outline doc that I have here. I'm excited to get into it. All topics are allowed. Doesn't mean I'll answer every question that you ask, but um, we can talk about startups. We can talk about Star Wars, talk about the Beatles, duck-sized horses or horse-sized ducks. Let's dive in without further ado. All right. First question from Fast Eddie from YouTube. Thanks for asking this one, Eddie. He says, what are three key tips for pre-launch, pre-revenue to make sure you absolutely must do. Okay, so there's a lot of tips here. I'll try to stick it to stick to three. Um, the first one is I would absolutely be building some type of launch list. Usually it's an email list that you have of interested parties. Sometimes it's as simple as literally a Trello board. Like if this is an enterprise product where you are going to be doing high-touch sales and your contract values are $500 a month, $5,000 a month, like really expensive stuff, then maybe you only have five or 10 on this launch list who are interested in hearing about it. And you're hand emailing and doing calls and doing demos and they're doing customer development with them where they have input. If it's something that's priced more in the $10 a month, $100 a month range, then you want to build more of an email list in, a, in an ESP, like a drip, a MailChimp, an active campaign. 
And this is where I say, I used to say, start marketing the day you start coding. And in fact, that is a title of my third book. It's available for free download as a PDF. Um, go to robwalling.com, enter your email, and you can get that book. Now I say start marketing before you start coding, because I think a huge mistake that so many developers make is they go off, build a product that no one wants. And oftentimes it isn't that the product is completely unwantable or unusable, but it's they missed the mark by 20% or 50%. And if they had just had more conversations with folks on their launch list, then you know they would have been able to build, build a better product. That's the first one. Second one is, have conversations. Um, whether these are email conversations, whether these are Zoom conversations, whether these are in person, there should be folks who want what you are building. If you're building B2B SaaS, then you're trying to solve a pain point. 92, 93% of B2B SaaS, according to the State of Independent SaaS, they are uh, people who have built SaaS apps, 93% are doing it to solve a specific pain. And that is really what that's really what SaaS is about, right? Um, it's, we're not building video games to entertain. We're not building Netflix so people can chill. We're trying to solve a problem that is that that businesses, maybe it's small businesses, or maybe it's prosumers, but someone is willing to pay for. And so if you're not having that conversation in advance of writing code as you're writing code, and when I say writing code, you know, maybe it's no code. Maybe you're building it in bubble. I think we have a question that might be coming up uh, around that. Um, but you know, think about having these conversations up front and whether it's, whether you want to do validation, whether you want to pre-sell, whether you want to just ask for verbal commits, whether you just want to ask if, if I built this, would you use it? And then dig into, you know, what have you done to solve this problem, uh, to date and, and going to someplace like, um, the mom test, if you haven't read that book and asking those types of questions of, you know, will you actually use this product? I think is, is number two. So that's getting some type of validation. And I don't just mean one time of like, well, five people said they want it. Now I'm going to go spend six months building it. That's not how you do it. It's iterative, right? You have to iterate and iterate much like all the geniuses of our time have done. If you go back, listen to podcast episode 600 that I released this week, I talked about how, you know, it's not, you don't just come up with a genius idea and run with it. The Beatles didn't do it. Um, Einstein didn't do it, and and Picasso didn't do it. They often iterated and iterated until they find found the right answer. So unless you think you are a better better musician than the Beatles, smarter than Einstein, and or a better artist than Picasso, you're probably going to have to iterate too. So that's number two. First was launch list. Second is having conversations ongoing um, as you go. And then the third one. Let's see, pre-launch, pre-revenue. I think I would start toying with some marketing approaches. Because the biggest, so the biggest risk when you are launching a B2B SaaS these days, it's not technology risk. You can build any idea you have pretty much. The risk is that no one cares or that you can't reach anyone who cares. And so how do you reach folks? Well, there's Facebook groups, there are, um, there's SEO, there's content marketing, there are paid pay-per-click ads, there are partnerships and integrations. There's all these things that you can be thinking about and even dipping your toe into the water, testing before you launch. So when before we launched Drip, I was already running Facebook and Google ads to a couple different landing pages, split testing headlines, and gathering emails. And I wound up gathering a total of about 3,400 emails on our launch list. That was from podcast appearances I was doing. That was from in-person conversations. And about, I think about 500 of those were, were paid. And they didn't, you know, they didn't convert amazingly well, but I was learning the space, learning how people talked about it. And so I think um, that's the other thing I'd be doing is, is figuring out one approach that I 
that I feel good about, you know, that, that when the day we hit launch, I know we're going to be, you know, doing the product hunt thing and emailing our list, but beyond that, what are we thinking about? Um, Oh, my screen just went black. Hopefully I'm still streaming. Yeah, it looks good. All right. So thanks for that question, Eddie. It's, it's a really good question. Um, probably deserves, you know, a blog post or a whole podcast episode, to be honest. All right. Next question is from David. He says, what has the body of a unicorn and the head of a Pegasus? I love the, um, I like this, like the duck sized horse one. So I will admit, David, I didn't know the answer to this. And that's why it's amazing that we have Google at our disposal. So according to Google, this creature has no specific name, but in some literature and media, it has been referred to as an alicorn, a Latin word for the horn of a unicorn, especially an alchemical text. I don't know what alchemical means, but I like it. And producer Ron, let's skip down to Justin Jackson's question. Yeah, it looks like we have three down here at the bottom. Um, next question is from Justin Jackson on YouTube. And he says... Hi, Justin. Uh, you originally launched Startups for Rest of Us in 2010. Later, you launched Tiny Seed Tales. How was launching Tiny Seed Tales different than Startups for the Rest of Us, which is a podcast? What's changed in terms of podcast launch strategy since then? It's a really good question because I've actually been noodling and, yeah, don't quote me on this, but we've been noodling on, you know, should, should we launch uh, yet another podcast? And so I was actually revisiting this topic over the past few weeks. So launching Tiny Seed Tales was a lot, well... <laughs> It's interesting because when we launched Startups for the Rest of Us, I actually did go all in on promoting it. And we got on Apple's new and noteworthy. Um, we followed the, these basic principles that I'm not 100% sure if they're still valid today. But back in 2010, you, you didn't have trailers. You would record four episodes of your podcast. And you would put all of those in the iTunes store. It was iTunes podcast thing. It's called Apple Podcasts today, right? There was no Spotify. There were none, you know, most of these other others didn't exist. So it was all after iTunes. And you did four episodes because I believe when someone clicked subscribe, by default, it downloaded up to four episodes and it would goose your download numbers, giving you, if you only had one, it would give you a quarter of the download numbers. And so download numbers get Apple's attention. And I believe if you have, it's, it was like good artwork and good quality and reasonable downloads, they would put you in uh, new and noteworthy. And so that was a big thing that, that we tried and we, we succeeded. Tiny Seed Tales was different. I didn't launch it like that. We actually just used our own audience because we have, you know, across microconf, Tiny Seed, robwalling.com, startups for the rest of us, like literally tens of tens and tens of thousands of folks who already know about us. So we were able to send some emails, do some social, and, and we really did parlay that. Um, what, so what I don't know is if that stra same strategy would still work today, you know, to try to get onto a noteworthy. My gut is that it is so competitive today that it, it, it might still work, but it, it's a much more long shot. And that's actually why we decided not to spend all the time on that launch strategy um, uh, of kind of targeting Apple, trying to get the reviews early. Like I've never asked for reviews on Tiny Seed Tales because it's just not like a, a main focus. So, um, and these days, you know, I launched Tiny Seed Tales as a separate podcast. And then a couple months later, um, I was having a conversation with Dan Andrews of Tropical MBA, and he said, why is it even on a different feed? You're the same host. You're st still talking about SaaS and startups and bootstrapping. 
it's kind of the same thing. I would just put it on the same feed. You already have the distribution there, you know, because startups, the rest of us at the time probably had 10 times, maybe 20, 10 to 20 times the listener base that Tiny Seed Tales did because starting the next thing is really hard. Um, it is hard to still launch your next startup. I think we have a question about that later. It's hard to launch your next podcast. It's hard to launch your next blog because it, it doesn't have the same, um, I, I think it's kind of like you've moved past there often. You know, after you've been doing it for a decade, you're like, well, I'm used to there being tens of thousands of listeners. And to go back to a thousand people listening to you, it's kind of, it, it can be kind of tough. Now, on the flip side, it's easier because you already have an audience and you can point them there. Um, but, you know, not everyone subscribes. So that uh, thanks for the question, Justin. I appreciate that. Next question is from Carlos from MicroConf Connect. He says, I'm starting a new SaaS business. And despite a successful previous experience, I can't stop feeling extremely anxious about it. Hey, this is the exact topic we are. This is a great segue. Is this something you're familiar with? How did you deal with it? Absolutely. So every time I launch something, whether it's a new podcast, a single blog post, um, a, a new conference, um, to launching Tiny Seed, launching Drip, each of these, I get that terror of firsts, the Google terror of firsts. It's a blog post I wrote years ago, an essay. And I absolutely had it with Drip. I already had... Um, literally created millions of dollars in SaaS revenue before um, Drip. I had, you know, written a book that became a bestseller about starting startups. Like I had been doing this for a long time. And I, let's see, when we launched Drip, it was, when was it? It was 2013. And I started, yeah, so I was about eight years in. Um, and I had multiple successes under my belt. Like I had been working for myself for, you know, six years or something. And I was still pretty anxious about it. And I think the stakes get, well, I think there's a couple things. The stakes get a little higher when you're perhaps a little well, more well-known because there's more eyeballs on you. So that can be one thing. And I'm not sure, Carlos, if you have that. But the other thing is, like I said, it's hard to go back. It's, you, we forget how difficult it is in the early days. You know, you forget what it's like to sit and code for three months and really only have a handful of people that you're talking to about it not knowing if you're going to get the positioning right, not knowing if you're building something people want, something people want, not knowing if, if it's going to work and to spend months and months and then launch. And then it, you know, even if the launch goes well, you'll often have a lot of churn up front and then you'll feel bad. Like, oh, I'm not really good at this. You get imposter syndrome again, like you have already many, many times. So, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, I've, I felt it. I think the thing to think about or what the way I've thought about it is a, just cause I've succeeded in the past does not mean I can do it again. Um, so I try not to almost, I try to almost let that, let that go. And it makes me, I think work harder and focus more on doing the right things. It's blocking and tackling, right? Launching these products. As long as you're not trying to launch Facebook or Netflix or, or, you know, Uber or something like you're launching B2B SaaS. We have some pretty specific, blueprints, guidelines on how to get that done. And you still have to put in the work. Like it's hard work, it's luck and skill. You can't control luck. So you have more skill than you used to. You probably have more revenue money in the bank than you used to if you've had a win. And you probably have more experience than you used to. And you still need to put in that hard work. And I think that's something, um, I, th I think it's something that's easy to forget. The other thing is, well, A, expect it to be a little longer and a little harder than, you know, than you want it to be, but also sanity check this. Do you have a co 
founder? Do you have a mastermind group? Do you have a spouse? Do you have someone who's been on your journey with you who can not, you know, blow smoke at you, but who can say, look, this is going to be challenging, but like, I'm going to be here with you. You're good at this. And the odds of you succeeding somehow pivoting and figuring it out eventually are really, really high. When you look at folks like Jason Cohen, who started multiple startups, um, Ruben Gomez, myself, um, you know, Heaton Shaw, like you do get better at it as you go. And while it's still hard every time, I, I think that it's, I think keeping that in mind as a healthy fear, but then letting the anxiety go, knowing that the odds of you succeeding are probably much, much, much higher than they were five years ago when you did your last effort. So it's a good question. You know, I, I say the, what is it? Majority of being an entrepreneur is managing your own psychology. This is exactly point on, um, to that, you know, to that, uh, that topic. So thanks for that question, Carlos. Devin on MicroConf Connect asks, I'm actively picking customer pain for my company's segment, as opposed to competitor pain. And I'll define those in a second. Do you have any general observations about SaaS for non-technical customers? Okay. So customer pain is where your customers are more challenging to reach. Perhaps there may be lower tech. So you have to do high touch and a lot of onboarding. They're probably more effort to support. Think of like legal or real estate agents or, um, any, you know, a lot of brick and mortars where it's just harder to serve those folks than saying serving developers, designers, and entrepreneurs who probably going to get your product. They may be a little more picky, but they're going to get the basics uh, of stuff and not going to need nearly as much handholding to do it. And then competitor pain is where you enter a space like email service providers or CRM, where it's like, oh, it's a lot of entrepreneurs and technically skilled people, but good Lord, are there a lot of competitors. And so the pain is just dealing with that. You know, it's dealing with how many competitors you have. So, um, so Devin has said, I'm actively picking customer pain instead of competitor. Do you have any general observations about SaaS for non-technical customers? Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think it's kind of what I said. we we actually fund quite a few of these with tiny seed, um, ranging from, uh, I'm trying to think like builder prime is for home improvement contractors and, uh, um, senior place is for placement agents who help seniors find assisted living facilities. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot. And if you go, just click through tinyc.com slash portfolio, you can see it. So I'm very bullish on these segments. They just have different, they have different challenges than if you pick competitor pain. And so, so here are some of the challenges I see. And here's the folks that are winning in the, in, you know, in the, the customer pain spaces. Um, number one, they do high touch sales, especially in the early days, like as high touch as you can possibly do without going crazy and spending, you know, 40 hours onboarding somebody. Um, they just, they're doing a lot of things that aren't, that don't scale very well. And in fact, we have a company who's still, I think to onboard a customer and import all their data, it takes like eight to 10 hours of dev work and they're, but they're doing tens of thousands a month in MRR. So you would think, well, shouldn't they be past that? And it's like, well, no, because they've optimized for customer acquisition, not for optimizing that one piece of it. And they're in the process of doing it now after they know they have a business that they're pretty confident can grow into seven figures. So that's one thing is like spend a lot of time, uh, both in the sales touch and also in the success and onboarding. Another thing is you have to price your product accordingly if you're going to spend that much time. And so you cannot charge $50 a month um, in these spaces. Now, you could say $50 a seat if you think your average company will have you know, four seats or five seats. It's in that low $100 range. 
uh, and I would say two, 200, 250 a month is probably bottom end what I would look at. It depends on how much customer pain it is, right? Um, if you're dealing with folks who are really, really non-technical, it may need to be $500 or $1,000 a month. And dealing with folks who are, uh, you know, just slightly more tech technically savvy, um, that's in that two to two fifty. Again, I think that's a minimum price point. And if you can't ask for that, it may be a non-viable business, right? So you have to price it in because of all the time that you are going to have to spend, or you're gonna have to hire someone to do it eventually. And you have to be able to afford that. Last thing with customer pain is there does tend to be a lot of word of mouth in these spaces. Um, and it's, it's in, and you have to find out where they are because while we in, you know, we hang out in microconf connect, we hang out in our Slack rooms. Um, we had out on, hang out on Twitter. There's a lot of people that don't hang out in any of those spaces and they hang out in old bulletin board for like old forums. Um, like, so like if I were serving silver age comic book collectors, they're in Facebook groups and they're on, on the CGC, which is a grading company forums. They call them the boards. That's, those are the two biggest on uh, Instagram. Now those are the two or three places. And versus if you're serving uh, lawyers, then where are they? I don't actually know. I know that there's a few podcasts they listen to. I know there's a website called The Lawyerist, who a friend of mine runs. It's very popular. Um, and then they probably have some Facebook groups, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if they're still in Facebook groups or if they've you know migrated. And so you have to find those places. And I would get in there early and I would start to understand those customers really well. Word of mouth goes really fast in these spaces because they'll try something new and they'll either rave about it or they'll rant against it. And you want to be present for that. And if they rant against it, then you come in and you say, um, Hey, so sorry you had, you know, I'm the founder. So sorry. I had that experience. I'm willing to fix it. Like we're, we're a work in progress and blah, blah, blah. Like you jump in. So those are, I could go on, but you know, we have to have to move on, but those are the three off the top of my head kind of, of, um, elements that I would be, or, or things I would be looking to do for customer pain. Thanks for that question, Devin. All right. Reindeer Jiggy from YouTube. If you were starting over today and trying to find a .NET invoice to acquire and iterate on, where would you look? Yeah, so I do. You know what? You know what question I really don't like is when people say, this is not this, but when they say, if you were starting over today with nothing and none of your experience, none of your network, what would you do? And because I'm just like, probably something very similar to what I did back then, just, you know, I may need to work harder today or something. Um, but this is not that question. This is like, I bought an, I bought an app for $11,000 in 2000. I always forget the year. I think it was like 2006, if I were to guess. .NET invoice. Um, it was doing a couple hundred dollars a month. It was in shambles. I was told it was in great shape. It wasn't. I uh, rewrote half the code base. I relaunched it. I marketed it. And I got it up to between three and $5,000 a month in revenue, ultimately, um, before I took on a business partner when I started doing Hit Tail Drip and then eventually just, just gave it to him. But these days, and back then, I looked at some certain sites that basically don't even exist anymore. Uh, so these days, I would be looking at a couple places. One, I would uh, subscribe to Quiet Light Brokerage's um, buyers list, uh, FE International as well, and Empire Flippers. Those are the three. And I would look at MicroAcquire. And there are there are also, there's like 1K projects and sideprojects.com. There's a couple really low-end ones where it's like $1,000 with no customers. And personally, I'm, I don't know that that's much of a head start. You know, I, it, it, unless you have some type of customer base, some type of revenue, like has the idea even been proven? Because the hard part is proving it, not writing the code, right? It's time consuming to write the code, but the uncertainty is in the customer base. So I would personally save up a few more thousand dollars and look for something that has at least a bit of traction. 
I'm trying to think if there's, there's gotta be another, oh, the, I know what the other thing, cause I bought Hittail, I was cold emailing. So I sent like 30 or 30 or 40 cold emails and eventually bought Hittail. And I basically looked for apps that ha- that didn't look like they were maintained and, um, was just pitching like, Hey, I'm looking to acquire something. So that, that's kind of the fourth or fifth, I guess, approach, uh, that I'd be thinking about. It's a good, good question. Reindeer Jiggy. Dan on YouTube asks, looking for our first sales hire, where should the balance fall between domain knowledge, industry connections, and general sales skills? Ooh, I think industry connections are the least, I mean, it'd be amazing. It'd be amazing, but to, to get someone with industry connections, but I, that's a nice to have. I think you almost have to just write it off as it would be great if it happened, but I think general sales skills is number one. Um, because teach, if you're good as a founder and you've trained your customer success people, your support people, your developers to generally understand your domain, you can do that with a good salesperson, but can you teach sales skills to someone who doesn't have them? I would say it's a lot harder, right? If someone innately is a great developer or a salesperson or customer success, you can teach them. I mean, look, I'm going to be honest drip. It's a complicated product. It's amazing. It's simple to use. It's, uh, you know, super powerful, but there is, when I say complicated, I mean, there's a lot to it. It's very powerful. I should probably. Who had Gmail before, and we could educate them in a handful of days about drip, how it works, who the customer base is enough that they could start answering emails that week. And, you know, by the time I left drip, we had 12, is that right? 12 or 14, uh, customer support people doing live chat and email. And we had an additional six customer success staff who would actually do, um, zoom calls, screen shares, and also email with like high, you know, the VIP or the higher end customers. We trained all of those folks. So domain knowledge, while again, it's, it'd be, you know, when people came over from other ESPs, yes, it was a quick start. But that was just a week of training, you know, or three to three to five days or a learning curve of a couple of weeks, um, training someone on sales skills months, six months. I mean, someone like me, you can never train me on sales skills. Like I'm never going to be as good as someone who, you know, either is naturally, uh, that, you know, engineered towards that or who someone who just has learned how to do it. So that would be my order. Number one, sales skills. Number two, I think domain knowledge, number three, industry connections. It's like when I'm thinking about, so if I was thinking about business development, someone who's going to do partnerships, industry connections would be really high on the list. But for a salesperson, I think we should be, we should be bringing in the leads inbound and, or doing outbound to bring in, you know, prospects for that, um, salesperson. So I don't know that I expect my salespeople to, you know, essentially bring their own prospects. But thanks for that question, Dan. I think it's a good one. David, this might be our last question. We'll see how much time we have left. If you still have a question, do feel free to post it and I may be able to zip through these. David on Connect asks, what is the best thing to do if revenue has plateaued? Am I doomed? David, be chin up, man. No, you're not doomed. Um, so it really depends on why revenue has plateaued. Usually it's that you have churn, Usually it's that your churn is high or your, your, um, you know, new trial count, I'll say, I'm just going to assume you have a free trial, that your new trial count is, is too low. Usually you want to be looking ahead. There's a pretty simple formula for when am I going to plateau? And I would always be calculating that, um, when I was running SaaS apps. 
because it, it's just it's simple math, right? If your churn is this, your customer base is this large, you need this many new trials every month to stay flat at this point, or you need you know twice that to keep growing it at X amount. And so, best thing to do if revenue is plateaued is a couple things. Number one, go to startupsforrestofus.com and Google, and uh, there's a search bar on the upper right. Type in Ruben Gomez, G A M E Z, plateau. And he and I recorded an episode five years ago about this topic, this exact topic of revenue plateauing. Because of the founders I know, he is one of the most thoughtful and one of the most knowledgeable about breaking through plateaus. So go listen to that. But aside from that, as I said before, churns too high, not enough trials, or your um, pricing's too low, right? These are your three levers. And so if you, the odds are your pricing's too low anyways. So I would consider raising prices, um, but only, well, it, it's a really depends answer. So in general, I would consider raising prices. However, um, if you're not landing some of these trials because your pricing's, because you're not providing value in the product then that's not a good time to do it. But um, anyway, so pricing is a big lever. I would consider that. Um, churn, I would find out why people are churning. Are they churning early? Are they churning late? Are they never getting, because if they're never getting onboarded and they're churning all in the first 60 days, then you know you have an onboarding problem. But if people are, uh, after the first 60 or 90, they are sticking around or they're they're churning after six to 12 months, then you have to ask yourself, is this, um, is this something, is it a product that people don't use long-term or am I dropping the ball and people are graduating from this product up, right? You have to figure out that reason by looking at the numbers. So you do want to segment churn by price point and you want to segment churn based on month. So you have a full grid of it because if you just have a number like churn is 10%, that doesn't tell you anything. You need to know that in the first 30 days, churn is 15% and then it drops down to like 4%. It's like, oh, well, we just, people are either using it as a trial or um, they're yeah using it as a trial or they are um, not getting onboarded. You need to work on that. Last thing I'll say is, oh, some products really are one-time use products and they have enormous churn, 20%, 25% churn, and you just can't get around it. This is like, I want to research what products I should sell on, you know, insert e-commerce platform here on Amazon. Well, unless you build additional things like rank tracking to keep them around, then I'm going to go research and then I'm going to cancel. <laughs> And that's it. You're going to have a lifetime value of a month, right? And so you have to ask yourself, is that what your product is today? And do you just let it go and, and hey, it's plateaued and I'm all good? Or, um, you know, do you adjust the product as such? Final thing, I know I just said final thing, but final thing is I was talking about leads. A lot of people, you just don't get enough traffic. And that's like the number one, not enough traffic or enough prospects, you know, if you're doing outbound stuff. And that's like the number one cause of plateauing that, well, churn and, and then that. Um, so it's like, try more marketing approaches, get better at the marketing approaches you have. Like that's, that's what I'd be looking at. So without more context, that's what I got for you, David. Thank you. A couple more questions and we will wrap. Bill on MicroConf Connect asks, I know you've touched on this before being a struggle when you were in the weeds with Trip. What advice do you have for staying positive in spite of frequent fires? Caused by platform risk. Oh, I know that feeling. It is hard to remain positive about the future with platforms, frequent, frequent changes and potential for sudden massive changes. It is. And I live in the future. Like what we, I, you know, my, my wife lives in the present and I live in the future and I know founders, I know some people, you know, I have a relative who lives in the past, right? When you live in the future and you have platform risk, it is scary. Um, so the things you have to ask yourself is, 
is this platform risk real? Like, have they smoked other, uh, you know, competitors of yours? Or, you know, do you think that there's a real possibility that they will? So, you know, in that case, then um, you either have to decide, do I diversify across multiple platforms? Do I just take this risk and live with it? Can I live with it? Or do I sell this, this company? Because you can sell companies with platform risk. They just may be discounted, you know, based on... Um, uh, based on what would otherwise be a full purchase price. But look, if you can get, if you're SaaS and you can get 5X annual revenue, 6X, and you can take that, even if it's 50 grand, 50 grand to 500 grand, and you can move on to something that doesn't have platform risk, it might not be a bad call. You just have to think about it. Um, what doesn't help is to worry about it all the time. Because you do have to ask yourself, can I control this? And the answer is probably not. But then when I think about that, I actually think, what platform is it? And can we build relationships with people on the inside there so that we have a little bit of, of an inside track? Like, what can I do to lessen my platform risk? And the folks who I see who deal well with platform risk are kind of good networkers and they start talking partnership or they connect with, um, let's say you're on uh, Heroku, that you go to Heroku's event and you you know go to events where Heroku employees might go and you connect with them or you connect with them on Twitter or if you see someone on Indie Hackers or on MicroConf Connect who works at Heroku, like you make it a point to start relationships with them and just be like, hey, we're, we have an app on Heroku, we love it. It, it. it can help you like build a little bit of immunity. Obviously it can't make you 100% immune, but it can give you a leg up versus doing nothing. So there's a lot there, right? It's like, can you? Do, first thing is, can you do anything about it? If the answer is yes, try to do those things. Um, if you can't do anything about it, then you need to stop worrying about it. And if you can't stop worrying about it, then you either diversify, so you fix it, or you may need to move on. And that's what I did with Hittail, actually, right? About every 12 to 18 months, Google would just, it was so annoying. I was working on Drip. It's like trying to run this team and like Hittail's being being decimated by Google. And so um, that was when I, I just sold it. And I actually sold it for not a great multiple because it was declining at the time, but I, did, I just didn't have the time and focus to do it. So hope that's helpful, Bill. It's a really good question. Last question for today, and then we'll wrap. Pasidu on YouTube asks, how do I find a good SaaS idea? Is e-commerce a good niche? There's a bunch of good niches. There's, I, you know, I, I venture to say there are no bad niches. There are only niches where people don't charge enough money or um, they don't understand the customer's pain. So I think ruling an, uh, a niche out as good or bad, I don't think is super helpful. How to find a good SaaS idea. So most state of independent SaaS, most people find a problem and they find a problem that either they are experiencing and want to fix with software that their spouse, significant other is experiencing, that a colleague at work is experiencing, or that they experience as a customer of another platform. And so back to an example I gave earlier, Jonathan, founder of Builder Prime, which is CRM software for home improvement contractors. He had a home improvement job done on his house and he hated the communication so much that he said, I'm gonna build software to do this. Um, and that is often the way people do it. Now, scratch your own itch has been something around for years of, well, you should only solve problems that you're an expert on. I don't believe that. I, I believe it gives you a leg up but it's not binary of, well, you're going to succeed if you do and you're not if you don't, right? But I do think that um, I keep an idea notebook of like problems that I see kind of in the, in the world. And if I were ever going to start another SaaS, you know, maybe I would solve um, them. The, there, you know, there is some common advice out there that it's like go research in Facebook groups and look for pains. And I, 
think that's cool and interesting. I think that's neat to validate things. What we've seen in state of independent SaaS is it's like 5% of companies that launch do that, find it that way. And the overwhelming majority are actually finding it through themselves, their network, at work, seeing it in the wild, having conversations. I would... Depends on where you are in the stair step. Like, I should... Did you even start a SaaS site? Think about, go read the stair step approach to bootstrapping and think about, maybe I'm just going to look at all these platforms. And in fact, where is, there's a list of a bunch of marketplaces. I'm going to find it for you. It is rocketgems.com slash blog and search that for SaaS marketplaces. And there are 68 marketplaces, app stores. This is things like Shopify, Salesforce, HubSpot, Pipedrive, Zoho, CRM, Zendesk, on and on and on. Do you have any familiarity with any of those or a desire to go into any of them? Because to me, that's a that's an easier way to build a SaaS because the, the distribution is built in. And um, yeah, I'll link it up in the show notes here. But the, the distribution is built in. And so that's where you don't have to learn all at once and you can build, you still have platform risk, but you can build some small things, you get the quick wins, you can uh, build enough revenue to quit your day job, and then you go and start the harder SaaS. Like you shouldn't go and try to start Drip. Like Drip is a, is a good, it was a good SaaS idea and it still is, but I really wouldn't advise you to do that unless you have what I had, which was an audience experience, confidence, and $200,000 being thrown off of a prior app. You know, it all depends, like good SaaS idea really depends on your stage. And so I'd be looking at simpler ideas including things that I could solve with no code, bubble.io, Airtable. Um, I think those are some pretty great ideas today. And with that, we are going to move towards wrapping up. I went a little long, but those were really good questions. Thanks so much for showing up today. A couple housekeeping items. MicroConf Remote is in just about a week. It is microconf.com slash remote, May 3rd through the 5th. It's from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Eastern time. We're diving into all things money. It's going to be super fun. And the venue that Xander has picked out is pretty amazing. Um, it's a 3D walkthrough venue where it's almost like a first person, you know, interaction where you're walking around. It's really cool. And uh, the topics ranging from, uh, you know, investing as a founder to um, what do we have sales to like uh, prediction, promotion. What is it? It's looking forward. It's uh Oh my God, forecasting. It's like forecasting your SaaS revenue. Anyway, it's going to be great. In addition, we have MicroConf Local in London uh, in about two and a half weeks. It's in mid-May and that's microconf.com slash local dash London from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on um, May, May something. Go to that URL because I forget the URL or I forget the, the exact date. And thank you to Hey.com and Stripe for being our headline partners once again in 2022. They've been with us since 2020 and they make everything we do just a little easier. Thanks again for showing up today and uh, your questions were awesome and I look forward to connecting again, hopefully at MicroConf Remote and or MicroConf London. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for joining me this week and every week. If you haven't left us a five-star review in whatever podcatcher you have, I'd really appreciate that. It's the MicroConf podcast, and hopefully you enjoy these episodes where we bring our live streams on or where we have the MicroConf refresh episodes where we look back at the best MicroConf talks from the past decade plus. So thanks for joining me, and I will talk to you next time.